Almighty Father God, you are our deliverer and our savior. You see our affliction. You have heard our cries. You know our sufferings. And you have come down in the person of Jesus Christ to dwell with us, to walk with us, to deliver us. Oh, what a very present help you are in our times of trouble. Thank you for gathering us this morning to remind and stir our faith by your spirit and through your word. We are indeed vacillating and wavering and uncertain. Our emotions are like waves tossed here and there. Our souls are often weary and unsure and anxious. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for being our sure and steadfast anchor for our soul in this tossed and turbulent world that we live in. Come this morning, I pray, Lord, by the power of your Spirit and grant us great and firm and sure confidence in Jesus Christ, our Deliverer. Triumph over our hearts of doubt and remind us again of your amazing, abundant compassion for us, your people. Cause us to rest in your presence with fearless faith. And grant us grace that we might honor the Lord and revel in his presence as we worship you, our God, our Savior, our Deliverer, this morning and forevermore. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All the way... My Savior leads me. What have I to ask beside? Can I doubt his tender mercy? Who through life has been my God. Heavenly peace, divinest comfort. Here by faith in him to dwell. For I know whate'er befall me. Jesus doth all things well. For I know whate'er befall me, Jesus doth all things well. Have you ever asked, why would God be leading me this way? I think all of us have been there. Why would God be leading me this way? We know he's a good competent, gracious guide, comfort to us. But we still wonder sometimes. Moses, no doubt, was right in the middle of this kind of quandary in his own life. And out on the side of that desert, the backside of that desert, we find him again this morning. We looked in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, the birth of Moses, this deliverer. Saw how God worked in a miraculous way to accomplish much, to save this one when all of the other infants, all of his other siblings were dying, all of his other peers. 
We also saw in the latter part of chapter 2 of Exodus where God was making this deliverer. where He was shaping him and molding him in many ways. We notice there that Moses had an innate instinct for justice, even though he was getting it all wrong. And it ended up landing him in Midian as opposed to being a uh, person of status and prestige, which is how he started out in Exodus 2.11. Then last week we noticed that Moses was called by the Lord, and we found that the Lord actually was speaking to him, the, the angel of the Lord was speaking to him through this burning bush that was on fire, and yet it was not consumed. And the Lord called out to him and was speaking to him. And so there's where we are this morning as we get to the latter part of, uh, the, or actually chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. And we're still right there on the, on the, on the um, backside of this wilderness, this mountain range called Horeb, with a barefooted Moses gazing with wonder at this burning bush that wasn't consumed. And yet this uh, burning bush was speaking. The, Lord, the angel of the Lord was speaking to him from this burning bush. What in the world would God's people need? Why would they need to know this? What's the, what's the aim of this? Now, I've, I've said this before, and I want to keep reminding us of this because it's helpful. This book was originally and was first, it first landed in the, in the hands, if you will, of the second generation of Hebrews. The first generation of Hebrews were the ones that actually were led out of Egypt. That's a story that we are looking at right now. But the second generation were the ones that actually went into the promised land. And Moses had written this, and it was delivered to this second generation of Hebrews. And imagine not only the security of knowing that God had called this one Moses to lead them out of the, out of the bondage and slavery of Egypt, but this morning what we're going to find as we look at this text is that as the the second generation of Hebrews were looking at this text, and as we look at it this morning, I want us to see more than just that Moses was God's man to deliver his people. And, that, and that's, we'll, we'll see that over and over again. That's clearly the main point. This morning, I want us to see why God was so moved to make for himself a deliverer. In other words, we know that Moses was the man, the one that, that was the deliverer. But, and we're going to see here how... God was commissioning him. But what was it that made God call Moses to be this deliverer? So this morning we're going to be looking at the Lord sending this deliverer. So chapter, just kind of get an outline here. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 was the birth of the deliverer. Chapter 2, verses 11 through 25 was the making of the deliverer. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 was the calling of this deliverer, which is Moses. And this morning... Chapter 3, verses 7 through 12, the sending of this deliverer. So have a little bit of an order there and understand that a little, a little better. So the question then this morning that I want us to consider in our passage, the sending of the deliverer, verses 7 through 12, was a few questions that we're going to be asking. We're going to be asking um, um, why, we're going to be asking who this deliverer is, and then we're going to be asking how God did this. But I want us to see it first and foremost in these three points as we consider verses 7 through 12 together. And all of these begin with, um, or begin, helps us begin understanding who God is particularly. Point number one, God's compassion. Point number one, God's compassion. This is verses 7 through 8. God's compassion. Point number two, God's commission. Point number two, God's commission. This is verses 9 through 11. 
verses 9 through 11, God's commission. Point number one, God's compassion. Point number two, God's commission. And then point number three, God's consolation. God's consolation. This is verse 12. Point number three, God's consolation. Verse 12. Let's notice first God's compassion. And before we get there, I want us to notice something that I think we could very easily miss, something that's really kind of the flip side of God's compassion. And I don't believe we'll be able to understand God's compassion well until we understand something else first. And it really gives us the background for understanding God's compassion in verse 7. Notice, if you will, with me in verse 7 of chapter 3. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. I'm underscoring here. The idea that these people were a people that were afflicted. And they were afflicted, my people, who are in Egypt and have heard their cry. I'm underscoring this idea that they were crying out because of their taskmasters, as we see here in verse 7. God says, I know their sufferings. I'm underscoring this idea of sufferings here. And then in verse 8, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Brothers and sisters, we forget too often that we live in a profoundly broken world. Though we read our text this morning, and we see that God's people during this day, during the day of Moses, were a people who were a people of affliction, a people who were crying out because of their taskmasters, a people who were suffering greatly. We too often and so often believe that that was... Um, That was something that happened in a time in the past. And then we're confronted with the fact that we live in a world, though prosperous, though blessed, though affluent here in America, we are no less desperately covered up and oppressed in the agony of our soul. We're a people who are afflicted. We're a people who are crying out. We're a people who are suffering. Now, true enough, we try to cover it up with foolish things like entertainment or gadgets or possessions, but our souls are in just as much agony. And yet sometimes we even think that if life was normal or regular or ordinary, then somehow it should be blissful. It should have no concern. We should live in a, a utopia, a, a world of, of ease and comfort. That, that's what we're, That's supposed to be what's normal. And yet, Day in and day out, we think we'll eventually get to that day, and yet it never comes. And you and I both know that it's never just one thing, but it's a thousand. That constantly keeps our lives in conflict and in struggle. It's amazing, even among our day, the sorrow of our souls. One of the most common medications given today from our drugstores are painkillers and medications to help us with our emotions because we're coming unglued and we don't know what to do about it. In other words, my point is this, is that we too often try to cover up or pretend that sin has not quite as profoundly broken us in our society as it actually has. We like to maybe sugar-coated or believe that it's somehow um, better than, 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 than so many other places, and so therefore it's okay. Brothers and sisters, I want to communicate to you that sin hasn't simply frustrated us or bothered us 
It has racked our very spirit and mind and soul and body and everything around us. There is pain and there is affliction and there is suffering in our world. And for us to cover it up or pretend like it isn't there is foolishness. Now, we have options. And we too often, as God's people, go the route of the world. And you know what we do? We complain. (laughs) We whine. We grumble. Let me make a suggestion to you. Is that there is an appropriate way for us to be dealing with and to understand this world that we live in that's so very broken. And it's not that we complain or grumble, but is what we have is a biblical, a biblical way to respond to that. And we have an entire book with this name. Instead of grumbling and complaining, God has given us this thing called a lament. A lament. Laments are, to lament is to appropriately address the pain and suffering in our world and to acknowledge that it is every bit as heinous as it actually is. If you've ever taken the opportunity to read through the book of Lamentations, I would encourage you to do that. It's really horrific to think of all the horror that God's people were going through during the time of Lamentations. And and it's hard to find a place in our Bibles where everything was wonderful and great and there wasn't any problems. There's not very many pages in our Bible that have that. And so for some reason we think our lives are supposed to be different than that and it's odd. But right in the middle of the book of Lamentations, chapter 3, in the middle of chapter 3, so it's very central not only um, in way of its, its lay in, in, the book of the, in the book of Lamentations, but it's central in the sense of the message of the book of Lamentations. Here it is. Listen. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind. And therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is His faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. The Lord is good. Listen to this. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him. To the soul who seeks Him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. The book doesn't end there. The book goes for another three chapters on and on about how the struggle doesn't go away when you confess that. It doesn't magically just disappear. But the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases and His mercies never come to an end. We've got to believe that again as God's people. And we will never believe that until we realize how profound the brokenness that is in our own souls and that are in, it's in the world around us. And so first, I want us to see as we consider God's compassion, is this awful condition that God's people found themselves in. This awful condition that God's people found themselves in was in verse 7, where their affliction was real. Their crying out was because of their taskmasters. They, they, they had sufferings 
uh, to the extreme. It says later they were oppressed, struggling in every way. With that awful condition of God's people as the background, let me read our passage this morning. Verse 7. Then the Lord, and this is the Lord speaking to a barefoot Moses staring at a bush, right? So don't, don't forget that. He's standing on the side of the mountain. This bush is speaking to him. The, the angel of the Lord speaking to him through the bush, out of the bush. And this is what the Lord says. I have surely seen their affliction, the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down. And I have come down. Note what how our text begins, and this is this is in this is in just about every translation that I saw, so I hope it's in yours as well. When the Lord speaks, he says, I have surely seen. And the point here is that the idea is that word for surely, that, that confidence there is actually connected to every one of those verbs. So God says, I have surely seen, I have surely heard, I have I surely know, and I will surely bring them up. It's almost like God knows that we will not believe him. (laughs) That we're not convinced that he sees and that he hears and that he knows our suffering and our sorrow and our struggle in our soul. He says, this is surely the case. I've seen you. I've heard you. I know your affliction and your pain. Brothers and sisters, If you've placed your faith in Christ Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and He is your refuge and your deliverer, God sees the affliction of your soul. He hears the cry of your voice in the darkness of the unrelenting oppressor of your heart. The Lord knows us, and He is willing to come down. You see... Our answer is not in our going up to God. Nowhere in Bible do we see that the answer is us going up to God. Over and over and over again. In fact, in Genesis, when Adam and Eve are found that they're in sin and they're hiding, who is going after who? God himself is the one who comes down. Our only hope, our only joy Our only redemption, our only deliverance comes when our God comes down and provides for us this wonderful saving. It is not in our going up, but instead it's in God's going down. And that's what's so beautiful and and wonderful about the New Testament when it says in John 1, 14, the the word became flesh. And you know what it did? It dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, the glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God came down in the person of Jesus Christ. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Emmanuel, God with us. So I want you to see the background of this is that in our, in our affliction, in our crying out, in our sufferings, our God's a God of compassion. Well, Shane, wasn't their afflictions and their sufferings and their, um, you know, God was going to be gracious to them, of course, absolutely. But you see, my affliction, my suffering, my crying out is because of my sin. 
So God's not as apt to see me and hear me. Don't believe for a minute that their affliction, their suffering, and their crying out wasn't because of their sin. See, we assume that they were, they were a little better than we were. No, it, it's very much because we're all sinners and we live in a world that's full of sin. That we have this affliction and this brokenness. God's compassion is abundant. But I also want you to see here that this amazing compassion that God has isn't just abundant and lavish, but it's definitive. And this is glorious. Notice what it says in our passage in verse 8. It says, he says, he has surely come down. He's come down. And notice what it says. He's come down for two reasons, it says. First, to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And to, number two, bring them out of, the, out of that land to a good and broad land. There's no possibility here. There's no contingency. There's no, there's no maybe. God doesn't say, I'm going to attempt to deliver them. And I'm going to try to bring them out of the land. God says, I have come down and I will. God, God, God this, this understanding is a, to deliver them and to bring them up. There's a definitiveness here. There's a speci- uh, specific act that God's going to do. And he's going to accomplish it. God's being very clear here. Notice that he says that his desire is to be very definitive to, according to verse 8, to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land. You know where that land is? It's not just Egypt, but it's in that little place called Goshen. That's this little spot just south that's kind of the, the side, out-of-the-way area for the Egyptians where all of the, It's the slum. It's where all, all, all of the, the Hebrews stay. It's not where the Egyptians and the elite stay. It's not the nice neighborhood. It's the, it's the place of Goshen. It's this little side place, that land over there in Egypt. God says, I'm going to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians and bring them out of that land. And what is God going to do? He's going to take them out of this Goshen and he's going to put them in a good and broad land. He's going to bless them. This land of flowing with milk and honey place of the Canaanites, Hivites, Hittites, Amorites, Perzites. You see all of these different names. Now, we read this and we almost kind of move on. God's going to bless them in an amazing way. But what do you think this meant to this first group of people who got this book called Exodus? They're standing on the other side of the river getting ready to go into Canaan and wondering if they're their families and their children and their lives are going to be wiped out if they do what God's called them to do. Moses hands not only the book of the law, but all of the responsibility of leadership back over to Joshua at this point. This is at the end of the uh, beginning of, of the book of Joshua. And they're getting ready to go into the promised land. And their question is, is, will God be faithful to actually get us into that place that we've been wandering in this wilderness for so long and God has promised us this? And the point of our text here is this, is that why, why would God bless them with such a wonderful place and cause them to overthrow all of these people groups that are mentioned here? And as they're looking at this passage, they can say, if God was compassionate enough to bring that, our last generation, our parents, out of Egypt then could it be that he'll be faithful and be compassionate to us to bring us into this land of Canaan? See, that's exactly the thinking that God has called us to. If God was faithful through the person of Jesus Christ 
to bring salvation by faith, then will he be faithful at our last breath to bring us into glory? Isn't that the question? Isn't that what we, we, we genuinely want to believe? <laughs> Surely, brothers and sisters, he's seen our affliction, he's heard our cry, he knows our sufferings in this world. And he will come down and he will deliver us from the hands of our oppressors. And he will bring us up into a place called heaven where we will be in his presence forever. Are you sure of that? Well, over and over again, God has proved himself to do that very thing. And so this this chapter isn't just to say Moses is the deliverer that God has appointed. That's true, and that's being shown here. But it's also saying, why would God want to save this people? It's the same reason why God saves you and me. For God so loved the world. It's not because of our affliction. It's not because of our pain. It's not because of our sorrow. It's not because we are us. It's not because we're Americans. It's not because anything is innate in us. It's because of everything that's in him. His compassion is what led, uh, led him to deliver us. And that's what he's communicating here. Because God's people, those people who are getting ready to go into the promised land, the second, second generation of Hebrews, they needed to know that just like we do today. And that is this. Our salvation is based on God's compassion, not on us. Or our suffering. Or our sorrow. Or our need. Or our wants. What a wonderful, definite deliverance that God has promised here. Because God is a compassionate God. Second thing I want us to see is God's commission. Verses 9 through 11. God's commission. This point, there's no doubt in my mind that Moses was nodding with great affirmation. This is good. You see, Moses, Moses has a heart for justice. Remember in chapter 2? He wants his, his people, the Hebrews, God's people, to be delivered. He, he desires that. He had a burden for them according to um, uh, uh, Exodus chapter 2, verse 11. One day, chapter 2, verse 11, one day when Moses was grown up, he went out and he looked on the burdens and he saw the Egyptians beating the Hebrews, one of his people, and he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian because he had a burden for those Hebrews who were suffering and in affliction and crying out to the Lord. He knew their suffering and pain. And Moses had this heart for them, which is his people, the Hebrews. And he's thinking, yes, God has seen them. God has heard their cry. God knows their suffering. And God is doing amazing things. I'm so, he was so affirming of that. It was so wonderful. And so then the Lord turns in verse 9 and he says, And now, different translations translates it a different way, therefore now, or different ways. But the, the now is an emphasis there, and it actually is at the beginning of both verse 9 and 10. Our ESV doesn't show that. It seems to take that and now and seem that it can be connected to both behold and to the command come in verse 10. But it's actually at the beginning of both verse 9 and 10. So it says, and now. So he's turning to Moses and the bush is still speaking or the Lord is speaking to him through the bush. And he says, because of this compassion that I've shown you, verses 7, or I'm showing the, the God's people, he's, he's seen them, he's heard them, he knows them, he's going to come down. And Moses is thinking, yes, this is exactly what God's people need. And now, 
He says in verse 9, Behold, in other words, he's calling on Moses to do something. He's causing, calling on Moses to affirm, to acknowledge, to, to understand with clarity and really understand with, with um, perceive, perception, eternalize the situation. He's saying, I want you to understand with clarity. Right now, Moses, I want you to understand that the cry of the people of Israel has come up to me. And I have seen the oppression which which the Egyptians have pressed them. And so the first thing that Moses is, or that God is calling Moses to in this commission is he's calling him to see the world the way God sees it. He's saying, I want you to behold, I want you to see what I'm seeing. I want you to acknowledge that what I'm saying to you, and that is that these people that are the Hebrews are being oppressed in Egypt. And I want you to understand that this cry has come up to me. And I want you to affirm that. I want you to acknowledge that and realize that. And Moses is right on board. I mean, everything we've gotten up to this point is that Moses, that's Moses' heart too. He's been stuck on the backside of the wilderness of Midian forever. And his heart at the beginning of chapter 2 was that I want, I want my people to be delivered. I want them to come out from under this burden of the Egyptians. And he tried to do it in his own way. And he ended up landing himself out in the middle of nowhere. And so he was so thankful that God had finally said, I'm going to work. God says, I'm going to do this. God says, he says, God is saying, um, I have, I, I, I'm, going to, I'm going to come down, it says in verse 8, and deliver them and bring them up. And then he says in this commission in verse 9, he says, now I want you to understand that this is what I'm seeing. And he wants to bring Moses into understanding the things that God understands. And then, out of nowhere... The Lord sideswipes them. Look at verse 10. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh. <laughs> well, wait a minute. This was wonderful. This was great that God was going to do God's work, that he was powerful and mighty and wonderful, doing all these wonderful things. God was going to, God was going to deliver and bring up. God was going to do all these things. Notice in verse, verse 7 and 8, it says, I have, and I have heard, and I have known, and I have come down and to deliver. And, and all of these are God saying, I, I, I. And then in verse 9, it says, now I want you to behold... And then in verse 10, he goes, and now, and the, word, the, the phrase there for and now is an emphasis. It's kind of underscoring it. Say, now, not, not later, not one day, not maybe, but this is a certainty. And now, for sure, I want you to not only behold what I'm seeing and what I understand, but in verse 10, he's saying, and now I want you to come. Some translations say, I want you to walk. The idea is there is, I want you to go. I want you to get busy, get, get, get to this task that I'm calling you to. The King James says, come now, therefore, and I will send you into Pharaoh. The New American Standard says, therefore, come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh. Then IV says, so now go, and I will send you to Pharaoh. So the idea here, the emphasis is, is I'm sending you right now. I'm, I'm, I'm getting ready to launch you off into this. He says, so come and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Do you notice in verses 9 and 10 all of a sudden it's you, 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 this is what I'm doing to you, this is how you're going to do it. This is, Wait a minute, I didn't, Moses didn't sign up for this. The Lord all of a sudden made a turn. And now the Lord says, not only am I going to do this, but I'm going to do it through you. He's going to do it through a human agency. God's not just going to drop it out of the sky. He's going to use this man, Moses, 
to deliver his people. So not only did he say, now behold, not only did he say, now come, but then Moses says, who am I? (laughs) The, The obvious question. It makes so much sense when you read the passage. Verse 11, this is still part of the commission. Verse 11 says, And Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Who am I? Now, this is not some existential question. He's not trying to figure out his identity. He's not trying to find himself um, and and understand what what his his existence is. No, no. This was a very practical question of his ability. In other words, when he says, who am I? He's saying, Lord, who am I? In other words, how in the world do you think that I have the ability to do what you're calling me to do? Moses was concerned with his ability to do what God called him to do. Moses, no doubt, was making the point that he had tried this before, right? He had tried to go and deliver God's people before. And he made a mess of it. Not only now has he made a mess of it, but the, 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 the Pharaoh, the last Pharaoh, which is now dead, but the last Pharaoh wanted to kill him. That's why he was out in the middle of, wood, in the, middle of the wilderness at this point. And the Hebrews that were there said, who made you judge of us? And so he, he successfully, in his attempt to do what God was saying for him to do at this point, he successfully made both groups, the Egyptians and the Hebrews, opposed to him. And that's why he's out in the middle of the wilderness. And so his question is, is this. It says, who am I? I've already tried this thing and I messed it up every, in every which way that possibly could be messed up. How are you calling me to do this? What, what, what gives me the task to do this? Why, why have you given it to me? It was not Moses' ability or, ability or experience that God was calling him to. But it does seem from our text and from the broader text, and that's, that's the problem. Let me back up and say it this way. Um, chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4 of, of, of Exodus really is supposed to be read together. And the fact that we've now broken it up into, I think, six sermons up to this point, you're not seeing it put together like it needs to be. I would encourage you maybe this afternoon, um, a good way of using your Sunday afternoon is read chapters 1 through 4 of Exodus two or three times through and see how it all hangs together. Because the point is, is that the, um, the Moses of chapter 2, who had a heart for justice and had a heart to deliver the Hebrews and had a heart to do these things, this is the same heart that God had to deliver his people. It, it, Moses here, it says, it says in chapter 2, verse 11, it says Moses, when he was growing up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. God was seeing their affliction. And so in many ways, Moses was, God was giving Moses a heart like God's in so many ways. And the Lord says, I want you to go now and deliver my people. Why? The only thing we can see from the text, the broader text, is that Moses had this heart for justice that was familiar to God's heart for justice. The question now, however, remains, is how in the world is he going to do it? <laughs> because, I mean, you, you can have all the good intentions. You can come out of the starting blocks Every day. I mean, all those great ideas that you have in the shower, hardly any of them actually come to fruition, do they? They actually never happen, right? Because there were great ideas that just ended up staying in the shower. So how is he going to do this? Well, God comforts Moses in this regard. He consoles him. God's consolation. Verse 12, if you would turn with me and look at verse 12. 
Moses asked the question, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? There's no ability, no experience, nothing that would merit why God would be calling him. In fact, he fouled up everything. Verse 12, God says, from this bush, I'll be with you. I'll be with you. Moses' question was, for sure, more out of fear than out of faith. God was calling Moses wasn't because Moses was, see, Moses was enough Egyptian that he could find find his way before the Pharaoh. He knew how to do that because he lived there for so long. But he was enough Hebrew to know how to love them as well. Isn't it interesting how God made Moses so distinct that he he was enough Egyptian to be able to find his way in that world and he was enough Hebrew to be able to find his way in that world and yet God does not say, you know what Moses, you're actually the exact person that I made you to be. You, you, You know your way around the Egyptian palaces and status. You were there. You were schooled in that area. You have all the understanding of that. And look, I, I providentially made you so that you have a heart for the Hebrews, and I've done this for you, and I've done this for you. And I've done, you know, God doesn't do any of that stuff. You know what the Lord says in way of a motivation of how, how is Moses going to do this? God says, I'll be with you. He never once puts the, 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 the reason back on Moses in way of all the things that God had done in his life, even though we can see that, right? God says, no, the real point is that I'll be with you. I'll be with you. Our experiences and our abilities and our assets and the things that we feel that God can use so wonderfully are the very things often that are our weaknesses. It's the things that God shows to us in such a clear way they never were an asset because we weren't depending on the Lord. Instead, God promises his presence. And we see this again, actually, again, this, first, this second generation of Jews, of Hebrews. Um, they are told by God in Joshua chapter 1, verse 5. Now man, no man, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, God says, so I will be with you. And he's talking to Joshua. I will not leave you or forsake you. And so the Lord here is saying to Joshua, I'm going to be with you in the same way that I was with Moses. And I'm going to help you lead God's people into the promised land. We find in Gideon, he was fearful of the troops that were getting ready to go in battle with him. And in Judges 6.16 it says, And the Lord said to him, I will be with you. And you shall strike the Midians as one man. Jeremiah was facing a stiff-necked, rebellious people of his day. And he knew he would be oppressed and ridiculed and slandered in every way. And yet in his calling in Jeremiah 1.8, God says to Jeremiah, Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. You see, these Joshua, Gideon, Jeremiah. But isn't it interesting that many of us didn't go there? But we went to a passage where God has promised his church that if we seek to be faithful 
to go and to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that he has commanded us to teach. And we seek to be faithful in that way, to go into the world and, and teach and to preach and to communicate what Christ has taught us. He says in Matthew twenty-eight twenty to all of us as his church, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This promise is almost in every page of the Bible, and we don't even we don't see it because it doesn't stand out to us as clearly. Let me give you an example. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what does he promise us there? He says, I'll be with you, doesn't he? You see, the Lord's presence is why God was putting Moses through what he was putting him through. Why does the Lord lead us where he leads us? Could it be that the Lord's leading us where he's leading us, not so that we can get to the place, but so that we can get to him? Because when we're going through the turmoil and the struggle and the difficulty and the affliction and all the things that we're convinced that God can't do, and and especially can't do through us, could it be that the Lord all along was saying, yep, that's true, and all along what he wanted us to do is bring us to himself, not to the place. He wanted us to be with him. I think that's exactly what's taking place here. Because not only do we have God's presence being spoken of in verse 12 as a consolation and a covenant, as a comfort in verse 12, he says, but I will be with you. He goes on and says, and this shall be the sign for you that I, sent, that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, notice this last phrase, you shall serve God on this mountain. How does this sign help God's people? How does this sign help God's people specifically because Moses is standing on Mount Horeb and he's listening to this burning bush and he's barefoot and he's got the entire task in front of him and the Lord says, don't worry, I'll be with you and I'm going to give you a sign. And that sign, and you're waiting for that sign to be something that he can look at then or that he could take with him. Or that he could stick in his pocket. Instead, God says, this sign is going to be a sign that's off in the future. And this sign's going to have its power only one way. And that is by faith. The Lord says, I'm not going to be finished with you in this task until you stand right here on this spot with God's people so that they can serve me. So when we get later into the book of Exodus and we see Moses' tenacious spirit and he keeps coming back to, to Pharaoh over and over and over again and it's like he's, he's completely brazened. <laughs> he's bulletproof. Moses is, it's almost like Moses is completely convinced that Pharaoh isn't going to just look to one of his men beside him and say, you know what, cut him down. Remove him. Moses was going through before the very the most powerful man in all the world, over and over again, basically poking him in his eye, saying, hey, we're getting ready to do this, and there's nothing you can do about it. Let us go. But notice this, and this is what we're going to find as we go through the plagues. Almost every single plague, not everyone, but almost every single one, he doesn't just say, hey, let us go, or we're going we're to release this torrent on you. Almost every time what Moses says is actually in chapter 3, verse 18. Look with me there. Chapter 3 of Exodus, verse 18. Chapter 3, verse 18 says this. 
And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness. Why? That we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. How many of you have lived most of your Christian life thinking the book of Exodus was about God delivering his people? The last whole half of the book of Exodus is about something different. God's people gets to get delivered pretty quickly in this book. Just a handful of chapters in, they're going, to be, they're going to be out of Egypt. This book is about more than just God getting his people out of Egypt. It's not about them just getting, to, getting out of Egypt. It's about them getting before their God. You see, the point is that the latter half of the book is about the tabernacle. What's the tabernacle about? It's about God's people coming into the presence of their God and worshiping Him. Could it be that the book of Exodus isn't so much about God delivering His people, though that's a big chunk of it, that's the first half. God needs to deliver us, does He not? He needs to rescue us from our sin and our oppression and our affliction. But He's doing that for the purpose that we may come into His presence. The book of Exodus, the book of Exodus isn't just about God delivering His people. It's about God meeting with his people, delivering them out of Egypt, and then meeting with his people. So what we find is that this sign is a means of confidence for Moses so that he could go to the Pharaoh over and over and over again and said, this thing's not going to end until I'm standing back on that mountain in Horeb worshiping our God. What amazing confidence. It's the confidence we should have, brothers and sisters. They can't do anything to us, to those who love the Lord, right? There's no way they can come at us. There's no way they can remove us. The Lord, the Lord has told us how this is going to end. He told us that when it's all said and done, we're going to be standing before his presence. And there's what can separate us from the love of God? You see, you see, that's the kind of confidence that we don't live with anymore. We're not convinced that that is true, and our lives and our faithfulness is indicative of that so often. So how's the Lord going to deliver us? Why would the Lord God, the Father of all heaven and earth, deliver you and me? He'll do it because of the compassion of the Father. Who will God send as our deliverer? He will commission God the Son. And how will he accomplish that task here on earth? He will do it through the consolation of his Holy Spirit. Do you see what we have here this morning? We have the triune God at work. And even promised, if we were looking through the details, God the Father sends God the Son who is our deliverer and promises his presence through God the Spirit. Why? That we may serve and worship and glory in his name. Let us pray.